Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm delighted that you can be with us today. There have been few traditional scientists in the past, oh, two, three hundred years who have been willing to risk their whole careers in order to challenge the accepted wisdom in any basic science. In physics, you've got Albert Einstein, you've got Max Planck, and I know he's probably annoyed with me for putting him into such exalted company, but my young guest today is challenging the accepted wisdom in physics in the same fundamental way that they both did. And you and I can independently confirm, because of the things we've done, that he is absolutely and amazingly right and will be proven right eventually. Actually, putting together the truth of what happens at and after death turns out to be really pretty simple. The evidence of what really is going on is so abundant and so consistent that even 25 years ago, I had pretty much learned almost all of what I still teach today. So by the mid-90s, my attention had shifted to figuring out how what I had learned about death might conceivably fit with what I thought I knew about the physical world around me. And my research into the greater reality got a huge boost early in this century when we finally got some excellent Quantum Physics for Dummies book. And just just as an aside, I still recommend that everyone must read Quantum Enigma by Kutner and Rosenblum. If you don't read that book, you really can't hope to understand much about anything that's going on. But still, you know, even with their help, figuring out how reality works has been a much tougher nut to crack than simply figuring out death in the afterlife was. And it's been only in the past few years that I've had a set of working hypotheses that fit with this material reality, fit with the afterlife evidence, and also make sense, hypotheses that nothing so far seems able to shake. So I was feeling pretty good about myself. And then, to my vast wonderment and delight, last spring I found that my beloved Scientific American, which, to be perfectly frank, has long been my very favorite humor magazine, was partially redeeming itself by publishing the blog of an amazing young scientist who had reached all my same basic conclusions and had taken them so much farther than I ever could have. I just don't have the intellect and I don't have the knowledge to do what he's doing. But he he, he convinced me that I, I really am right after all. I can't tell you how delighted I am to have found wonderful, wonderful Dr. Bernardo Castrop. And now... I have to tell you, my whole mind is turned around on this. I really think our future is bright, and I think it's all going to happen soon. Bernardo Kastrup is a Dutch scientist with a PhD in computer engineering, and that includes artificial intelligence, so he's really on the cutting edge in that area, too. He first joined us last spring, just before he defended his second PhD Uh, thesis. This is in ontology, which I guess I never understood what it meant, but he says it's the study of reality of existence, and his degree is specifically in the philosophy of mind. Of course, his physics PhD for his consciousness theory of everything is still to come in a more enlightened day, but it's going to come. He is young enough, and if he just takes his vitamins, he'll be there. It's amazing that a major Dutch university has just awarded him a PhD for his discovery that mind underlies everything, which is something that the great Max Planck discovered a century ago, and Western science really has been fighting tooth and nail ever since. 
If you'll just Google Bernardo's second PhD defense, the link is nonsense. But if you just Google that, it comes right up. It was on, uploaded to YouTube on April, April 30th, 2019, just a few months ago. And if you, I, it's in English. It's, it's very easy. Frankly, he makes it simple to understand. But this is a historic, historic moment. Please be sure, everyone, go, and, go to YouTube and watch Bernardo's second PhD defense. It's, it's beautiful and it's moving. So, um, I, you, as you can tell, I'm a big fan of our guest today. Dr. Bernardo Kastrup has worked as a traditional scientist in some of the world's foremost research laboratories, including the European Organization for Nuclear Research, which is CERN, and the Phillips Research Laboratories, where, I don't know what this is, but something called the Casimir Effect of Quantum Field Theory was discovered. He's written lots of academic papers and books on science and philosophy, and he's a regular contributor to my favorite humor magazine, Scientific American. I have learned so much just from the little bit I have read of his work there. His website is bernardocastrup.com, B-E-R-N-A-R-D-O-K-A-S-T-R-U-P.com. When you go there, you can entertain yourself for hours while you also learn so much. Bernardo, welcome. I'm thrilled that you're with us today. Thanks for having me again, Roberto. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> for some who have not heard our previous interview, please again tell us something about your history, especially the fact that you really started out as a serious scientist. Well, I know you're still a serious scientist now, but Hopefully. a lot of scientists <laughs> might not say so. And But the thing is, you're skating along a very delicate edge because you're remaining a serious scientist, but you're also remaining true to what you're learning and discovering. And I, can't, I mean, almost no scientist does that. How did you start out and how did you change? I started out very traditionally. Um, I was working at CERN in the mid-90s, working on the so-called data acquisition system of one of the experiments of the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. Uh, we used as a side project some neural networks. There it didn't end up in, in, in the device we constructed, but it was a, a side exercise that became a, a hobby for me. Uh, neural networks it was part of my background, artificial intelligence and all that. And which led me to question, you know, what is it about an arrangement of matter that not, not only processes data, but which feels like something? Why is there experience accompanying certain types of data processing, which it seems to be what happens in our brains? And that led me to, to the philosophical questions of the nature of consciousness, where it comes from, does it come from anywhere? And ultimately led to the conclusion that consciousness is fundamental that uh, everything happens within consciousness and therefore there is no creating consciousness it's what already is there from the get-go why do you think science is having so much trouble with this because i read that magazine religiously and uh, i don't see that anybody else there even has a, a clue i mean the things they say are more like well we'll never know you know uh, this is going to be remain a mystery why why do they have so much trouble with this it's a spirit of the time. I mean, uh, science has grown so large that uh, every individual agent, every little person, every little scientist only knows a little bit of a, a much bigger thing. Nobody has an overview. So everybody has to assume that uh, the other experts in other areas that we don't work uh, with uh, know what they are doing. And, and that leads to a kind of network effect, a self-reinforcing effect in which certain premises, cer certain assumptions that were made in the beginning and which were good enough to explain what we knew in the beginning, uh, eventually fail 
but they persist uh, in a self-perpetuating oh. manner because of this network pressure to keep it in place. What has been the reaction to, you know, since you, you received your second PhD last spring, what has been the reaction in the scientific community or have they tried to ignore you? I don't think that defending the second PhD was changed much as far as uh, serious people in the scientific and, and philosophical community are concerned. I had already published a number of papers in academic journals before. My argument was, was well known and people either agreed or disagreed with it based on those papers, irrespective of, of whether I had a PhD or not. I, I, I did go through that process because my less serious uh, critics, uh, instead of discussing uh, the content or the argument I put forward, uh, they appeal to side issues like, well, Bernardo, you have a PhD in <laughs> science, but uh, you don't have a degree in philosophy, so we cannot take you seriously. Okay. Oh, then I thought I'm going to take that argument off the table by getting the highest degree possible in philosophy yes. so we can move on to a more productive discussion. I loved that that um, recording of your defense. It was beautiful. What you said was wonderful. And I loved the people who were questioning you because they really were obviously dumbfounded by the fact that what you had done was so amazing, and yet it's, they couldn't. It, it's very hard. If something is objectively true, it's very hard to shoot holes in it, and they were having trouble with that, but I think they loved you anyway. I think they wanted to give you <laughs> give you your degree anyhow, but I loved it. And ur- I really, everyone, I urge you, watch that that YouTube. It's just an hour long, and it's, it's really beautiful. All right, so we, we talked last time you were here about the idea of the world, a multidisciplinary argument for the mental nature of reality, which is what we're talking about, the fact that consciousness underlies everything. So what I'd like to do um, now, and everyone, please go back. Uh, this was last spring, late, I think it was late April or, or just before, mid-April. Go back and listen to that, and then this also will make even more sense to you because we were a little more basic then. And what I want to do now is bridge the gap between what's been my life's work and what's what's your life's work and ask you some questions, which um, I know you can beautifully answer because if you've seen you answer them, but I want the people listening to hear your answers. First, what's idealism as scientists use the term, as you use the term? It's metaphysical idealism. It basically means that uh, mind is primary in nature, mind or consciousness, whatever you want to call it, in the sense of experience, uh, uh, phenomenality, which is a technical term, that is primary, it's what everything starts from, it's the ground of nature, so to say the ground of all reality, and everything else arises as patterns and regularities of experience in mind. So we don't have to explain mind in terms of something else. We don't have to reduce our own consciousness to brain activity. No, that's not the right way to go about it. What we have to do is to explain uh, brain activity in terms of mental activity, in terms of mind. What we have to do is to explain why we seem to share the same world, even though everything is in mind. Why we can't read each other's thoughts, even though everything is, is in one universal mind. These are the questions we have to solve, not the hopeless question of trying to explain mind in terms of matter. Because right. matter exists only insofar as what we perceive. So it's mental to begin with. Right. I just love this. I love how easily you demolish what these people are devoting their lives to. You say we might all be alters, uh, dissociative sort of personalities of a universal consciousness. 
Talk about that. Well, I mean, I can't read your thoughts. Presumably, you can't read mine, at, at least ordinarily. Um, I don't seem to know what's going going on right now in the galaxy of Andromeda. Uh, presumably, you don't either. Right. So, if we are all in one universal mind, why is that uh, not the case? Why can't I read your thoughts? Why can't I know what's going on in Andromeda? After all, it's all one mind, right? So th this is something we have to explain, but we don't need matter to explain that. We don't need to postulate this entirely different category of existence called matter outside experience, this pure abstraction to make sense of this, because there is a psychiatric phenomenon called dissociation. It's known empirically and has been uh, proven uh, over the past 10 years or so since the advent of neuroimaging, um, which shows that one mind, even though it remains fundamentally one, it can seemingly break itself up into multiple disjoint centers of awareness. Which I psychiatrists, love this. Yeah, go, uh, yo, yeah, this is great. I, I, I loved it when you talked about this. <laughs> I'd never known this. You've taught me so much, Bernardo. I'm sorry. To, I just had to burst into enthusiasm there for a second. Please continue. No, I, I basically finished the argument. Disjoint this, this centers of awareness uh, are what psychiatrists call alters. I just uh, reused that term because I think it's appropriate. And there is a solid explanation for the mechanism behind this, this, this separation, seeming separation of mind, which we call dissociation, uh, which is the dissolution of certain cognitive associations. For instance, if you see a beautiful sunset, it may evoke in you a memory of your first kiss, which may evoke in you a feeling of warmth. Uh, so these are cognitive associations between different experiences, the perception of the sunset, the memory of your first kiss, the feeling of warmth uh, in your body. One leads to the other through a chain of associations. And when we have this connected chain of associations, that's what we call the ego. The ego is such a chain associating perceptions, memories, feelings, uh, narratives of self and all that. But if some of these associations dissolve, we break up into multiple egos, so to say, or multiple uh -huh. alters, which cannot access each other's memories, each other's experiences. So they, they feel like they are separate from one another. Uh, but that feeling disappears once the, once the associations reassert themselves, and then they all realize, oh, actually, we are and have always been only one mind all along. Wow. And, and you, you talk about a woman who had many different personalities, and her eyes are continuously open. Um, she's, some of her personalities can see and some cannot. When she's in one of those blind personalities, that same, and her eyes are open, that same brain that, that uh, had been showing normal activity in the, in the visual parts of the brain where they would register that activity, shows no activity because a different altar has taken over. That's right. That uh, literally illustrates the blinding power of dissociation. So if we know that, yeah, oh. if the, if dissociation can do that in a human mind, uh, turn a, a, a human uh, blind simply by the loss of certain cognitive associations. Yes. Uh, imagine what it could do uh, at the level of the universe. Maybe that's why oh. I don't know what's going on in the galaxy of Andromeda. <laughs> Or right. why I don't know what's going on in your mind, because I'm blind to it, since dissociation is known empirically to be literally blinding. 
I mean, to me, that pretty much, much, of course, this is very simplistic, I'm sure, but how can they say that the brain is somehow doing this stuff when the brain gets switched on and off by the mind that controls it? Makes no sense at all in a scientific way to me. But have you thought about what consciousness actually is? People ask me that all the time, and I don't know. What, What is it? I think it's it's impossible to to answer this question in in the way that the question suggests the answer should be. Um, when we say, oh, well, thank what you is, for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because you see, when we ask, what is this? What we are asking is, what are the differences between this and something else? Right. That's 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 what's implicit in the question. When you say, what is this? You're asking, how does it differ from other things? Yes. What, it, what is it? Also, that, there's also a not this. Correctly. That, okay. Correct, yeah. So, uh, by asking what it is, you're asking for what makes it unique, what distinguishes it. Uh, If consciousness is all there is, it's all that exists, then there is no answer to that question because there is nothing else to compare it to and to highlight its differences. Uh, Moreover, that is brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. And consciousness, (laughs) notice that consciousness is also the thing doing the asking. Um, and since it is also the object of the question, yeah, you have self-reference. It can't answer what it is because it's oh, the same thing wow. that's doing the asking. What, what we can do, Roberta, what we can do is to explain everything else in terms of consciousness. We can see what everything else is by appealing to consciousness and its modes and patterns of excitation. But we can't say what consciousness is because it's it's the primary level of reality. It's that from which everything else starts. That's brilliant. Thank you. I now know what to say to the 100,000 people who ask me this kind of question. Every year, probably, I get a, a quarter of my questions are somehow related to that because people find it so hard to believe consciousness, consciousness is primary. Thank you. That's great. So, <laughs> w- what is mind at large? Is that actually just the mind of God? Uh, what is God? Do you, Have you thought about those big questions? Okay, there are two questions. I'll try to answer one after the other. Okay. Uh, mind, mind at large is a term that was introduced by Aldous Huxley in the 50s in his ah. book. I forgot the name of his book. Well, never mind. He introduced, uh, yes. uh, he introduced the term. I use it in a very specific way in my writing. Uh, for me, mind at large is what is left of universal consciousness after you've accounted for all the dissociated alters. And this just gives me a a term, a handy, succinct term to refer to that without every time having to write an entire phrase to explain what I mean, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, um, so even when all the altars, 7 billion of us, I mean, I don't know how, 700 billion, I can't even remember how many people there are in the world, but it doesn't really matter. What... When, once they are all separated out, there is a remaining consciousness, mind, and that's what you're referring to. Yes, and I think there are many more than 7 billion altars, because I think every living creature down to the amoeba uh, is an altar, and there okay. may be a life in other parts of the universe. I think life is the image uh, of dissociation at universal level. In other words, uh, uh, life, organisms, living organisms, is what altars look like when observed from across their dissociative boundary. So, after you account for all that, what's left is mind at large. And mind at large then looks like what we call the inanimate universe, the inorganic universe. Everything that we consider dead, all of that put together as a whole is what mind at large looks like from our point of view. 
So is it possible, because when I first discovered the primacy of consciousness and that really nothing else exists, it seemed to me to, to be conceivable that even what we think of as inanimate actually is has some level or some aspect of consciousness. Absolutely. Is that how you... Okay, so you see it that way too. Okay. Absolutely. I don't I don't think only life has consciousness. I think consciousness underlies everything, the living and the non-living, because okay. it's primary, it's all there is. Uh, what we call life, I attribute to a certain local dissociative process in universal consciousness. But what is left is also the image of universal consciousness. Other processes in universal consciousness, which appear to us from our point of view as what we call inanimate matter. But I think behind the inanimate universe as a whole, there is also conscious inner life, the inner life of mind at large. I don't think an individual, individual rock has its own private inner life in the same way that an individual neuron in your head doesn't have its own private inner life. Only you, Roberta, as a role, as a whole, has individual private inner life. In the same way, I think only the inanimate universe as a whole has a, a private conscious inner life. And that's what we call mind at large. Okay. Um, just a quick anecdote. Uh, I've done extensive reading uh, uh, in this in, the, my, in my field, which is life after death. And very early on, I came across an account because we do a lot of traveling right after we die, and including to other universes. And yes, the universe teems with life. But there was there they talked about a planet which was in which the life was silica based, not carbon based. And basically, everybody could choose to incarnate as a rock for a while, and they moved, and they into them, apparently, life was normal. It was just moving very slowly. And you made me think of that, which I hadn't thought of in a million years, when you talked about this. I don't think we really probably know enough to say that we can understand whether or not matter that is not um, part of a, a life form is alive because uh, we don't, as you point out, we can't even understand consciousness. Everything might be alive and everything might be moving just very slowly um, because we know things move. It just takes so much longer. Yeah. Well, it, it depends on what you call life because you said, well, even things that are not alive may be alive. So w what you mean is that even things that are not alive in the way we understand That's right. may be alive That's right. in, in some other way that we haven't figured out or, or haven't come across yet. And, and it is not implausible that there may be silicon-based life because an atom of silicon – Silicon has many of the same characteristics, you know, four bonding positions as an as a carbon atom. Really? So it, yeah, it is not implausible. Uh, I don't know whether you knew this, but uh, I didn't. <laughs> of, of all other options to pick for the base of life other than carbon, silicon would be a natural one, and indeed. It probably would be much slower life because you know, reactions, How chemical reactions would be more difficult to, to happen, would require more energy and all that. Um, I stick to what we, what we know, what I know. I mean, I haven't had yes. the experiences you are describing, so I don't know that. So life, insofar as I know it, is <laughs> carbon-based and it's based on you know, metabolism, you know, uh, protein folding, protein coding, amino acids, uh, uh, mitosis, and all that good stuff. For me, insofar as what we know, 
that is the image of dissociation in universal consciousness. There may be other forms of dissociation that take on a different image, and that image may be carbon-based or, or, or silicon-based life, for all I know. But currently, I don't know. <laughs> I think that is fabulous. I'm so glad I mentioned that. I almost didn't because it seems silly. But that's something I didn't know. I appreciate that so much. All right. Well, then here are two questions that come to mind as we talk. Cause I haven't even gotten to the questions between you and me that I writ wrote down to ask you. I'm not sure we'll even get to them and I'll we'll have to just talk again. But um, how, in your view, have you thought about how, the Big Bang and how the how matter even came into existence. Have you do do you, do you think it, a Big Bang happened or have you thought about that? I think it's a very good model. It's a very good narrative uh, about how things have originated. If we take for granted that time exists as a kind of linear dimension, uh, from that perspective, it it plays a role. It serves a purpose in the context of our culture. We need this kind of you yes. know, origin narratives and the Big Bang may be as good as any because it has both scientific appeal. There are very good reasons uh, to infer that the Big Bang at some point occurred because if we play back the tape of the universe's evolution as far as we understand it, we, we are led back to that by inference, by extrapolation. And there are also uh, uh, there is also tremendous symbolic value in the idea of a being of a big bang, big bang, a primary explosion in which everything that is came out of nothing. There is tremendous uh, symbolism in this. I, I wrote about it in my book, uh, More Than Allegory, about religious myths. Um, so I think it's a good story. Is it literally true? Uh, I, I doubt. Uh, I very much doubt. I doubt our cognitive ability. To even know what can possibly be literally true. Maybe nothing is literally true. Maybe <laughs> everything is a big metaphor. Yes, yes. Um, I, and I, I, that's part of what I'd like to get to, to talk about um, your, your theories about um, religious myths and so on, because I think you're, I think you're right. But, uh, but I, one more question, though, first. Have you any sense of, of what, how life arose, what it is, um, because as far as I've been able to tell, no one has figured this out, and um, it, it's something science seems to fight because the intelligent design people are all over it. Well, there's there's lots uh, <laughs> embedded in what you just uh, said. Let me comment, uh, try to comment slowly on this. Okay. Uh, I think life is the image of a dissociative process in universal consciousness. I think that's what it is. Now, how did it arise? I don't know. Uh, I don't know how life arose from non-life, which technically is called abiogenesis. Um, no scientist knows, uh, yes. by the way. Nobody knows. There are some good guesses, some bad guesses, but nobody really knows. We've never been able to replicate the process in the laboratory. Uh, I don't doubt we, we will one day be able to do that. But what that will mean is that uh, we will find an artificial way to induce dissociation in universal consciousness. That's what it will mean. Uh, we will okay. find a way to poke it into dissociating itself, into creating an altar out of the inanimate universe. Oh, makes um, sense. I have no doubt this may happen. Now, how did it did it originally happen before there were, you know, intelligent, metacognizant beings to recreate the process artificially? What what kick-started it? I don't know. If you look at people with uh, 
extreme forms of dissociative identity disorder, um, by and large, what tends to cause it is childhood trauma. Trauma. Uh, okay. a, a very emotionally charged experience that leads to a, a self-defense mechanism entailing uh, dissociation. So uh, the person protects its, or him or herself from his or her own memories by, by compartmentalizing those memories in dissociate, dissociated blocks, dissociate, dissociated centers of awareness. So no one has the whole story and that defends you against that complete memory of the trauma. Could universal consciousness have been traumatized by its own loneliness? Well, it, it's conceivable, and I like to play with that story, but uh, the bottom line is um, we don't know, and I don't think we are capable of knowing uh, with our little brains. Well, actually, I think that's probably true, but it, it is something that I think everyone wonders about, and I think your answer is about as good as any that I've ever heard. Um, how did the universe, I mean, did was something got, was, was, Universal mind guiding the development from that Big Bang or whatever started it to today? Because as we know, a lot of the tolerances within um, the universe are vanishingly tiny. If things are just a little bit different, it either explodes or it collapses on itself. So is, is, that, is it being guided by that um, the, whatever is left over the consciousness that is not bound up in altars? That, that, is, that is probably the most uh, difficult question. Um, you're, you're alluding to the fine-tuning problem. There are certain yes. universal constants that, that are what they are simply because that's how they are. There is no explanation for it. They are simply what they are. It's a given from nature. And they all happen to be exquisitely fine-tuned yes. for the emergency of complexity in the universe. In other words, for the emergency of life. Yes. Um, uh, some offer an explanation for this, which I think is terrible by, <laughs> by postulating that there are infinite universes yes. out there, each one of them with a different set of constants. And we so happen to be in the one that has the right fine tuning because yes. otherwise there would be no one in it to realize it. I think that oh. that the answer violates one of the basic principles of science, science which is parsimony. Uh, that answer basically uh, uh, puts forward the most unparsimonious explanation conceivable, conceivable. by the human mind. Yeah. Yes. So uh, what, what are we then left with? Well, the, the alternative is that this is deliberate. Uh, do I like that alternative? No, I don't like that alternative. I'll tell you why. Uh, insofar as the laws of nature are what the mental behavior of mind at large uh, looks like to us, we can infer with a fair degree of certainty that mind at large thinks in very regular, stable ways, very predictable ways, because the laws of nature are very regular, predictable, and stable insofar as we know them. Yes. Every time we measure, you know, they are doing the same thing we expected them to do. And when that's not the case, we, figure, we find out that we actually misunderstood something. We discover something later that makes sense of it all again. To me, that is an indication that mind at large thinks instinctively. Uh, instinctive animals display very regular, predictable behavior. 
They are not sitting there contemplating alternatives, regretting the past, being anxious about the future. No, it's it. No, oh, it. Right. Once they are triggered by certain stimuli, they react in a very predictable way. So I think mind at large is not metacognizant. It's not deliberate. It, it's not there planning things out. Uh, it's just acting instinctively. In other words, everything that has happened from the Big Bang until now has happened because that's the behavior. Uh, entailed by what mind at large is. What it is determines how it behaves, because it behaves instinctively, and that's why everything seems so regular. Now, that's a great explanation, except that it doesn't account for the fine-tuning at all. Yes, um, yeah. and, and, and there I am at a loss. Um, so I, I do not know how to answer your question. Well, I never thought I would stump you, but I think the problem is that there there is so much we assume that um, it. I'll tell you the answer that comes from my my area of expertise. That what what's called the subconscious is actually the superconscious, and when we come to Earth, we take just a little part of it to be our whole aware mind while we're here. So as soon as we get back, we're going to know everything. Now that's another explanation which. Uh, you know, it's sort of a comfort when you realize that we get stumped, but I don't know if it's, but, if but, it's but, true. But then why are we here? If, if something else... Oh, I else, can tell you that. I can tell you why we're here, but I don't know if it'll satisfy you. So let me, I, I'll ask you the question, but just, just let me frame it more specifically. Okay. If we are coming from a place or from an entity that already knows everything, what's the point of being here? We don't know why it's necessary, but we do know that we need to grow um, our ability. Our we need to elevate our spiritual vibration. It turns out that consciousness, from the perspective of my studies, is is it vibrates at its lowest vibration. Um, it we experience it as fear and anger and hatred and all the awful stuff. At its highest vibration, we experience it as perfect love. Now, to call in um, the the religious aspects. This is uh, to, teaching us how to raise our vibration is exactly what Jesus came to do. That's what it's what he says in the Gospels, and and in fact, there are ways we can fairly predictably raise our vibration. And people who are not in bodies but have been on Earth and speak to us about why we're here tell us we're here to learn to do that. And that's why all the awful stuff happens. So that's what we we learn from my perspective but i don't think it if it helps you much i'm sorry but but you just said we are here to learn how to do that to learn how to raise our vibrations so there is something that where we come from doesn't know right it doesn't know how to elevate its own vibration I think that it does, clearly, because we were given this by a being who came from the highest aspect of, of that area. But um, for some reason, in order for us, for some reason, we start out at the low end. I don't know why. Um, I mean, we again, we don't know everything about all of this, but we do come to Earth in order to raise our vibrations to a high, spirit consciousness vibration to a high enough level that we don't have to keep coming back. That's the, the reason we are given. Um, but there's still a whole lot where tr we are trying to understand because to me, the big question is, why are we already there? Well, apparently there's something that comes from raising our vibration in this gym, if you will, where we come to push against negativity. Apparently that 
matters and, and allows us to raise our vibration still higher. But there isn't, a, 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 I mean, in some ways, what you are talking about fits so well with what with what we talk about, except we come at it from such opposite directions. I think that as we continue, both of us, all of us, to, to learn, we're, we're going to meet and each be able to illuminate the other, just as you have so much illuminated what I understand. Um, it's made a huge difference, frankly, just finding you and, and, and watching and listening to you. Could it be that uh, although there is some dissociated entity somewhere that knows a lot more than we do, um, it's not all the universe that knows it. Uh, and as part of it, we okay. have to go through the learning process as well. Possibly. Yeah, possibly. I mean, as I say, we are told we'll understand a whole lot better when we get back home. And so I trust in that. And I can't, can't wait to have 100,000 questions I've got now answered. But but anyway, that is what we are told is the reason why all of this exists and the only reason. So obviously, it's fairly trivial in a much larger scheme of things and all of it is consciousness um so do you see any movement in the direction of people better understanding what you have so well worked out my life has been so short in a historical context right it's, it's true to answer uh because we have such a tiny snapshot such a tiny window i mean if we take into account history and where we came from and sometimes i think that we may we are even retrogressing although i think it's a, it's an illusion yes. we are just making parts of our shadow that we and our ignorance that we were not explicitly aware of before now we are explicitly aware of that but uh, these are things we don't know now and haven't know at any point haven't know at any point in our history we just thought we knew um, I think right. on, on the tiny window I have to observe things that, yes, there is some progress. I think it's becoming patently clear for all honest investigators that the materialist metaphysics um, is the wrong answer. We may not have the final answer, but we know enough to know that materialism is not right. Um, it creates more problems than it solves, and it basically arises from uh, an artifact of bad thinking. It has nothing to do with uh, evidence. It has nothing to do with logic. It arises as an artifact of bad thinking, and that bad thinking is to project our own essence into something that is not us, like to say that uh, my consciousness, which is what I am as far as I'm concerned, arises from an arrangement of matter uh, outside my consciousness. So here we have consciousness trying to explain itself in terms of an abstraction of itself. It's like a painter painting a self-portrait and then pointing at it and saying, I am that portrait. How will uh. I explain myself in terms of the pigments and the pattern of pigments yes. in that portrait? Yes. That's, basically, that's what we are doing when we try to explain ourselves in terms of the patterns of firings between neurons. Uh, we are looking at a painting and are trying to explain our inner life in terms of the distribution of pigments on the canvas because we think we are the self-portrait we painted. And that's, of course, is, it, that is ludicrous. It's self-reference. It's like chasing your own tail. It will never work. And I think more and more people are coming to this realization, even in academia, that this will never lead anywhere, that we are thinking wrongly about the problem, our very assumptions and premises uh, are wrong to begin with. So that movement uh, I do see, but I think it's it's a very slow process. We have a long way to go. As you know, Dr. Planck said that uh, science advances by deaths. 
So it may be we're going to have to lose even one more generation, uh, the generation ahead of you, perhaps. Very possible. But, a few but, more. <laughs> Well, um, he thought it, he thought we would be within a generation or two of his own lifetime, and of course that didn't didn't work out very well. Um, I, all of that is really profound, and I really appreciate your saying all those things because I do feel I won't see it. I'll be in the bleacher seats by then, but I think you will. I think you'll see the light dawning, and I think it's going to be quick. I think there'll be a January when everybody is still holding to the lie, and then by December, it'll be so obvious that uh, everybody will uh, will at once espouse the work that you're doing, and that's why I think it's so important that you continue to do it and that you continue to do it in this ruthlessly honest and and drilling down kind of way because it would be very easy the way that I do it is somewhat intuitive and you can't do that. You can't do anything except be a serious scientist. And I really respect that. I think it must be hard sometimes though, when you're, when you're trying to break through to the, to the, the, the people who are ignorant and the, the broader world, because people, the people listening today, the people who listen, who watch your podcasts and, and just become aware of you and then follow you, those people want it to be sooner and it, i'm sure other people just like me are asking when when, when is this going to happen <laughs> bernardo for heaven's sake can't you do everything so thank you for being so rigorous and not um you know succumbing to what i'm sure is going to be an increasing uh, impulse to to somehow make it easier because it isn't easy i know that yeah, it is it is it is not but at the same time i don't know about you but it is not terribly important for me personally how soon it will happen whether it happens in my lifetime or not in my in my optimistic days i think it will happen in my lifetime in my pessimistic days i think it oh there is no chance it will happen in my lifetime <laughs> no, I, th uh, I think it will it but will. to me to me personally and, and this will sound now so egoistic what i'm going to say i, I don't think i am egoistic because I'm, I'm doing all i'm doing not for myself because i'm i am in peace with what i think i know uh, that satisfies me so I am doing this because I have a sense of responsibility. I don't know where it comes from. Jung would call it a, a diamond, you know, a diamond that keeps pushing me to do what I'm doing. But for me personally, I, I feel uh, a fair degree of, I, I don't want it to sound arrogant, but I, I feel quite certain uh, of where I stand, uh, especially with respect to what I think is wrong. I'm, I feel quite certain it's wrong. Uh, and when the culture as a whole will catch up to that, it, it's not too terribly important uh, to me, so long as I can put my head on the pillow at night and tell myself I've done everything I could. Now, once I've, once I've discharged that responsibility, when it will happen, it's not my problem. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, but I, but I, I, I do think, when I was your age, I think I felt that way to some extent, too, about the work I was doing, which is in its own way cutting edge. I mean, very few people understand what happens at and after death, and um, I've worked that out. And I am confident, just as you are, that what I've done is right, and that's my little that's my little puzzle piece into the whole panoply of understanding that you and I are putting, and others, so many others are putting together. But um, I, I think that... I think you're right, and I think I'm right, simply because you started out as a scientist, a totally traditional scientist, and you found things that led you to come to think certain things are true. I started out 
as a lawyer, I've never even taken a course in physics, never mind knowing anything about anything in science, science. And yet I was curious about what happens after death and spent 50 years working it out. Now, if we both come to the same spot, Bernardo, if you and I agree, and I think we agree on just about everything if we had a longer conversation, how is it possible for it not to be true when we came <laughs> from such opposite directions? Well, I th if you look at history, it's, it's even much more significant than you and I agreeing. I don't think there is anything new in what I'm saying for that matter. I think Schopenhauer already said that 200 yes. years ago. Jung yeah. said that uh, in sort of... Uh, uh, indirect ways, but he did say that in the 20th century, in the early and mid to the middle of the 20th century. I think uh, Advaita Vedanta philosophy from the Upanishads already said that three and a half thousand years ago. Um, so th there is certainly uh, this convergence, and it's certainly reassuring as well, especially as you mentioned, because of the fact that there is an alignment between people who come from a theoretical approach and people who come from an experiential approach and they yes. seem to match. But that is what makes idealism, this idea that uh, there is only consciousness, that's what makes it unique. Because materialists or physicalists could also claim that there is a lot of consensus, that, that there were physicalists in the 17th and particularly in the 18th century, uh, and they all agree with one another, and non nonetheless, that agreement is just because of shared cultural assumptions and uh, 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 vicious ways of thinking or, or addictive ways of thinking, so to say, that, that uh, perpetuate uh, artifacts of thought. Uh, but they don't have the experiential side going uh, yes. for them. Uh, maybe now, that's the difference. I, I don't know, but I, I, this has been wonderful. We're going to have to do this again soon if you have the time, uh, because I never even got to any of my real questions. Uh, so um, <laughs> I, there's, there's a lot more I'd like to discuss with you and, and like to hear from you, really. But um, we're going to have, we've come to the end of our time. So um, I'm hugging you all the way in the Netherlands. Thank you so much for the work you do. And please know that there are so many people who are following you now that you will never know or be aware of. But I hear from people all the time about our first interview. So I'm sure I'll hear a lot about this one. So, so, so big hug and I'll be in touch about doing this again. Thank you, Roberto. I'll gladly come back. This has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. I'm really glad you could be with us today. Wow, doesn't your mind feel blown? Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began, you never will end. And when you really understand what that means, it's going to change everything in your life for the better. Next week, our guests will be Dennis Grega and Michelle Zabo, who are Two good friends of our own dear friend, Dr. R. Craig Hogan. Michelle is a healer. She's a creative director, writer, and teacher. And Dennis is a college professor and research psychologist. And they've combined their talents to found AfterlifeData.com, AfterlifeLibrary.com, and VoicesAcrossTheVail.com. Dennis Grega and Mike Michelle Zabo are doing extraordinary work in providing an intellectual and documentary grounding for the moment. And that moment is not far away now when the truth that every human life is eternal will break upon the entire world. I've known about them for years, so I'm excited to meet them and I'm delighted to be able to introduce them to you. So please join us next week. And this week, our guest has been the extraordinary Dr. Bernardo Castro, here for the second time, all the way from from the Netherlands. My wonderful friend Bernardo, I think of him as my friend now. He is like Dennis and Michelle in their own fields doing indispensable work as a scientist in helping the truth to break everywhere that consciousness is the basis of reality and that our minds really are eternal. 
Dr. Kastrup is the smartest person I know. And at the same time, I think he's probably the wisest person. Unlike just about everyone else who's also working in this gigantic project to bring the truth of what really is going on to all the world, Bernardo has the patience and the grace to speak with scientists in ways that they seem able to accept. And he also has the vision and probably above all the kindness to share his early groundbreaking work with all of us. Again, my dear friends, you have heard it here today. Dr. Bernardo Kastrup's third PhD is going to be in physics. And what he at last reveals is going to rock the world. Sorry, Bernardo, I had to say that. <laughs> As you know, my nonfiction books are Liberating Jesus, My Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Staying in Touch, The Fun of Growing Forever, um, The Fun of Living Together, and very soon, The Fun of Loving Jesus, Embracing the Christianity that Jesus Taught. All my adult books are available, of course, in bookstores if you order them. Usually, they're not carried. And and on Amazon, and um, they're also available as audiobooks. If you want to talk about anything at all, my books or anything else, just go to the contact block on robertagrimes.com and send me an email. Just be sure to give me uh, your correct address. I'd rather, <laughs> yeah, be sure, but I'm sorry, I got. I was thinking about Bernardo and something he said. I can't wait to have him back. Be sure to give me your correct email address because otherwise I'll write an email and it'll go into the ether. Past episodes of Seek Reality are available on webtalkradio.net, realrevolutionradio.com, iTunes, iHeart, and on the wonderful Dream Mission 7 radio family. And many people now tell me they just they, there's a free uh, uh, Seek Reality app in the iTunes app store. Just get, take, get the app and automatically the new episodes will come to you. <laughs> now, meanwhile... This has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy, please make the most of this coming week in our one shared reality, knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being. And you, most of all in the entire universe, in all of reality, you in particular, are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.